Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are back because another episode of Star Trek has just dropped and there's so much to discuss. We need to talk about it. I am here with Kevin Yank, as always, and I am Rob Lloyd. And so the most recent episode to drop is episode four of season three of Picard No Win Scenario, written by Terry Metalis and Sean Tretter and directed by the great Jonathan Frakes. What a team. Well done, team. What a team, what a combo, what an episode. What are your first thoughts, Kevin, of No One Scenario? If this was as good as Picard ever got, I would be satisfied. Like, Look, this this deserves to be the high point of the entire series. It was an incredible episode. And it's amazing what can be done when you bring characters back and so they're not in their prime, they're not in a weekly, regular program that's going over and over again. So that whole threat level is diminished when you're in a, you're halfway through the season and you know, you've got more seasons to come. Yeah. But with this being touted as the final one, anything's up for grabs, anything could happen. So that threat level can be manipulated with, I'm not saying used, but definitely can manipulate the audience. So you're talking about that sense of we're all doomed, like to a certain extent you buy it. Like this yeah. could be the end of the road, at least for one of our characters. The whole scenario of a ship of our heroes trapped in a situation where it looks like there is no way out. Their resources have diminished. Oxygen is diminishing. They're at the point of if they're found, they're pretty much dead in the water. And that has been played out in Star Trek multiple times, but because of the the finality of this season, the age of the characters, the age of the actors. The shortness of this season compared to, say, a 22-24 arc season back in the 80s and 90s, that is rarely used. They have tried at times to be Game of Thrones in modern Mm. Star Trek, Mm -hmm. but it's very much still Star Trek as we know it. So they can manipulate that emotional investment a lot more. So we find ourselves, Vatic ship, the Shriek, is cat-mousing the Titan within this nebula. It has been blown to smithereens because of a tactical decision that Picard got wrong. And Riker is, is dealing with the realities of their situation. They are losing all power. They have no way. They're floating dead in the water in this nebula. Riker did a pretty sharp turn following the throwing Picard off the bridge at the end of the previous episode. He he was pretty quick to assess the situation and go apologize to his friend. So uh, I think it it further made me question the point of that heated moment at the end of the last episode. I feel like someone just had it as their personal mission to create a moment of their relationship fracturing under stress. And they were going to do that, whatever it took to get them there, and then they would move past it very quickly. (laughs) They moved past it incredibly quickly. Some might say that is more in character than the line that was dropped at the end of the previous one. That Um, scene was the first of several big speeches this episode, getting to hear from Riker what was going on in his head, in his relationship mm. with Deanna. It almost made it worth it. If the question was, why is Riker not behaving like Riker last episode? They did provide an answer for that here. Like he's, the, the guy's going through some stuff. And uh, he is, he is. Yeah, it affected me. And ultimately this continued the pattern that we saw last episode of, it seems like this 
season, besides telling a satisfying story, seems to be deliberately crafted to create breaks in the storm where there is relative quiet, where our characters have nothing to do but to confide in each other how they're feeling about the situation. And we're getting great character moments out of it. And that is a tricky balance to get. It's uh, There's been criticisms in other franchise shows, other IP, where finding that balance of how you hit the emotional while still going through the, the threat level. And mm. some shows don't get that balance right, where they literally put a break on any type of action or progress with the narrative and just go straight into, let's have a deep and meaningful. Other shows can blend that into the threat level is that when you're at this heightened state, you have to get straight to the point. And so this was a good exploration of the fact that it's being sucked into this nebulous type of a gravity pull system. There's the mystery of trying to solve what it is. And Dr. Crusher is sorting out the patterns of it, but they're at their lowest point. They've lost more than any other ship I've seen that hadn't been destroyed in the background of a ma major fight and taking solace just to take those final moments and some dealing with it by going into the holodeck, which is a whole other, there's been a lot of online criticism from fans and I'm interested to get your take on going, hang on, they're down to barest minimum life support. Look, it, enough. It, it is dumb, but it's one of those dumb Star Trek things that was established previously. And so it's fair game. It happened a fair bit in Voyager and there they, they explained it pretty clearly that idea that Starfleet ships have a dedicated non-repurposable power system just for the holodeck for the mm -hmm. crew to use in emergencies. Yeah, it was dumb in, in Voyager when they made it. I think they could have chosen not to bring it back. There was The thing that bothered me is there was nothing about that scene that wouldn't have worked in a mess hall or some other quiet corner of the ship. It seems like they must have spent a whole lot of money on that 10 forward set and they are using every excuse to get characters in there. A part of me was thinking, yeah, it's that whole case of they don't trust. It's that modern trait I'm seeing in Star Trek of they're not trusting that you can hit that emotional truth that is universal, whatever timeline you are, without having it set in a environment that you as a modern audience are comfortable with. Yeah. It's that case of having a, just sitting around and having a chat about that could be done at any of yeah. any space within Star Trek. And we've seen it done in regular Star Trek in any, any series, even if like in Star Trek two, you have Kirk going through his mortality crisis when he gets older and he's talking to bones about it, having the drink of Romulan ale Yeah, in his quarters, which look realistic, but are so futuristic. Mm. They don't trust that anymore. I don't think they just go, oh, we're going to have this deep and meaningful casual relationship chat. We've got to do it in a setting that we know as being a confessional area in, in, in that setting. I'm going, we've been doing this over 50, yeah, nearly 60 years. I've heard some comments about the fact that from the showrunners that this season, despite it looking like a movie so often, they have been making it on surprisingly little money. Mm. And 
behind that, like I hear a certain amount of pride of, oh, we reused that set from season two. It was very expensive, but we didn't have to pay for it. And it was almost like Terry Metalis, every time he reused something, his bosses were very happy with him. So he was going to reuse stuff as much as possible to make the exorbitant expense of season two feel less expensive somehow. Yeah, Terry but, Metalis has got to deal with, it's the final season syndrome. We've wasted all the money on the previous seasons. All the main showrunners have buggered off. So yeah. you've only got these sets. Ultimately, Most of question, our money has gone into the cast. Yeah. So. Ultimately, the question has to be, did it make the show better or worse? And for me, it took me out of the scene. And to their credit, they explained it on screen. It was very much a hand-wavy type of, oh, yeah, bye-bye. But they had to take the time to explain it. So it also distracted from the story they were telling. It was Jack's accent all over again. Like I was saying last week, I would have preferred Jack not have that accent so that they didn't have to explain it. But given that he had the accent, I'm glad they explained it. It's the right. exact same thing with the holodeck here. I would prefer they hadn't used it, but I'm glad that if they did, they at least did us the respect of explaining, explaining why. <laughs> And this led into a retelling of, of a young Picard. Yeah. And I wanted to point out a detail that I noticed that delighted me. And I don't know if this is just in my head, but throughout these conversations that Jack and Picard were having, Jack was fiddling with some red straws that were on ah. the bar and he was tying them up in knots. And I'm like, ooh, these are, this is like a visual reference to the red vines that are in yeah, his yeah, head yeah. and I didn't even notice his that. world it's great I saw them they were like prominently positioned out of focus in the background when they first went in and I was like that is a bright splash of red and when he got there and he started playing with them I was like that is not an accident that is done on purpose yeah that uh, is all metaphor symbol it's very cool I I don't know what to make of his flashes of violence yet they seem to be dealing with it head-on which is good but it is that puzzle box of the season definitely the voices in his head seem to have gotten a bit clearer this episode and to me they sound like vatic's voice they sound right. like amanda Plummer. yes we shall um we shall see how it plays out that's very interesting the symbolism that they're doing i guess it's because it's very much pushed in our conscience now but it looks very stranger things in the upside down with those red vines and that mm. red type of environment and those flashes of red doors opening and that type of hellscape environment that seems to be seeping in and that's being employed so much by Stranger Things. So I'm looking forward to see how it differentiates itself and steps itself away from that kind of symbolism and iconography. Mm, yeah. While we're speaking of Vatic, she did have a little scene where she cut off her hand and it became a face. And I've seen a joke online that was her handler. Uh <laughs> <laughs> What did you make of that? Do you think she's a changeling herself? Is she reporting to changelings? Has she got a changeling attached to her somehow? What's going I on? Think, I think she is an actual changeling. Okay. And that type of, that's something we haven't seen within the changeling culture. And I like that type of advan advancement of how they communicate, how they stay connected, even though they're disconnected from the great link, how they link themselves within this new faction. Yeah, is perhaps she is two changelings she's like the flunky and the handler like in one yeah. and, and that moment was them separating to have a conversation with each other for our benefit i'm not really sure what was going on there it was visually spectacularly creepy yeah i think it is their way of how she connects with changelings mm. within the conspiracy so 
That all smacks of uh, Star Trek VI and the bird of prey that can fire while cloaked. They're yes. like prominently changing some rules to unlock some new storytelling possibilities. To make it even harder to yeah. make the challenge something we have not seen before. But there was a great moment, and I, we did talk about it in previous episodes, and we finally got it. There was the moment where Vadek, in a moment of pu pure joy and release, got in her chair and spun around. Amanda <laughs> Plubber, very much a tip of the hat to her father, spinning around in his chair in Star Trek VI. It was a less triumphant moment. It was, yes. detach the weapon, we're going to, to our deaths on a suicide mission. But she yeah. was delighted nonetheless. Oh, yes, because you know, that unhinged character slash actor? Yeah. So the, where the lines blur. We had an incredible moment in the bar with Captain Speeches Shaw. two and three. We had Picard telling the story of Jack Crusher in the when they borrowed a shuttle and spent all that time limping home when they got hit by a meteoroid. And Picard dropping the F-bomb there. Which, uh, I don't know if you read the article that I sent you. I read uh, a few articles about that this week. Hey, are they contrary opinions about what, how it happened or how it came about? Oh, look, the people writing the articles come from it, come at it from one side or the other, but the showrunners and the cast and crew all seem to be on the same page of, it was improvised, it was not in the script, but it came from Patrick Stewart and mm. the showrunners went, this did not work for us when we did it in season one. <laughs> uh, we probably don't want to make everyone angry again, but the moment felt so real, so oh. human when that is what the scene needed. So they decided to keep it, but it sounded like they, they were not claiming it was the right decision. They are claiming they expected it to be polarizing. They accept some people won't like it, but it felt like the right thing to do to keep it in the moment. And that's something we'll talk about a bit later on when we yeah. get to our deeper dive. A long story that to the old swearing in Star Trek. Yes. And then we get to Shaw's speech, which is incredible. Just absolutely an incredible moment. We were praising him for his performance in his very first appearance in the captain's mess eating that blue steak. And yet... That feels to me perhaps like the strongest emotional beat of this entire season. Who yes. knows what they still have in store for us, but like I was saying at the beginning, if that's as good as it gets, I'm I'm walking away satisfied. And that's a guest star playing a character we've never seen before, have no expectation of seeing again past this point, but yeah, made us feel more than any of our regulars. And yeah, a, a, an actor at the top of their game given a gift of a speech. I think I spoke to you about it last week about this was the equivalent of Quaid's speech about the Indianapolis in Jaws. In Jaws. And I've seen that referenced a couple of other places as well. That was a touchstone for them in writing that scene. Yes. And it shows just yeah. that beautiful, just that slow, methodical retelling of how things happened and then the emotion slowly seeping in. It um, is an interesting contrast to me from the scenes with Ben Sisko in The Emissary, the series premiere of Deep Space Nine, where in a very similar way, Ben Sisko, who lost his wife at Wolf 359, comes face to face with Picard or Locutus, as mm. the survivors of that battle would see him. And the story is retold. 
in Deep Space Nine, it is retold in flashback. So we get to live it with Ben Sisko and then flashback forward and see the effect it had. In this, the job is done by the actor rather than flashbacks and special effects. Much as it is amazing, it still holds up today to go back and watch The Emissary and see those scenes inside of Wolf 359 of Ben Sisko in the escape pod launching away from his ship and it getting We can't leave her. Yeah. And also, but that's a whole telemovie length to show Cisco's journey. And so yeah. you have him going into the wormhole and meeting the beings within there. And they appear as not only his wife, but as Patrick Stewart as well play. So this whole ordeal plays out for him and it's his kind of coming to terms with that so that he can start the rest of the season on a fresh mind. The economy of it is what fascinates me, is like how much money and how many sets and rolls of film did they have to spend to let us into Ben Sisko's experience in The Emissary? And here, one actor did it in one speech sitting at a bar in close-up. Yeah, And it was more affecting this way because the experience happened in our mind where it is most terrible. I wonder what the emissary could have been if Cisco was treated that same way. Emissary is very much a product of its time. Obviously, it's 90s television and it was very much that case of we need to show everything. And now how television evolved, how streaming services has come along, how that balance of film, theater and television have blurred. And so stripping it right back could be a a sense of, yeah, there's nothing more horrifying that you can see that your mind can create. I love what they're choosing to spend their money on. Like they have effectively unlimited streaming dollars this season. Although, like I said before, they are claiming they are doing it surprisingly economically. (laughs) But Given all the money that is visible on screen in an episode like this one, that they choose not to take us there and live it through a flashback. They choose to stay right up close on an actor's face and tell it to us in a speech. It feels like remarkable restraint, great artistic choices. Oh, but it is that case of that, the functionality of that process and the coldness of going, we only can have so many people get on the ship. If that was played out, if you saw that acted out, it would be overdramatic. Mm. It would be, you'd have multiple actors, sound effects, editing, all this type of stuff. It would take away than just hearing it from that cool, troubled recount is just, yeah, like I said, it, the horror in your mind is far worse than anything that anyone can create on screen. And you, when you've got an actor at the top of their game, being given such beautiful words and imagery. Trust the art of what we all do this for. I feel like we haven't talked enough about Seven this season so far, and she had a lot to do with the Changeling hunt this episode. What did you think of that sort of sequence of events? Yeah, um, it's it's a, a fascinating exploration of who they keep and who they have let go from Picard. And pardon me, because as we know, Seven had no interactions with Picard at all. And so they've tried to, in many ways, build up this really intense relationship between them over two and a half, three seasons. But it's great to have Jerry Ryan back. It's great to have her inhabit this character and how Seven of Nine has evolved and grown and the challenges they have to go through, the intelligence of them, how they solve 
solve problems and how they interact with people. It's fascinating to see how that character has changed. And it's great to have her out of, it always was in, in Voyager as well, not having her attached to any romantic stuff. They hamstrung her by throwing this odd thing of them holding, her and Raffi holding hands at the last episode of season one. I went, what? It felt forced. It felt like they, they needed, they had a sense that they needed to create an emotional arc for that character, that season where she, along with every other character in the season would come out of the story changed forever. Mm. And this season I am appreciating that Seven is more or less being allowed to be the competent Starfleet officer that we know her to be. And in a sense, it is the step forward that she has by donning the uniform, rising to first officer and acting in that capacity. That in itself is a change from when we left her. And it feels like, at least so far, that is enough for her or that is enough for the storytellers here to let us see her inhabiting that that status that accomplishment and be the foil to Shaw a bit but this is not a story about Seven I don't get the sense that Seven will be making a monumental life decision at the end of this season I get the sense that at the end of the season, the Titan, should it survive, will fly off into the sunset with Seven as its first officer mm. and and will be perfectly satisfied with that and maybe leaving room for more Jerry Ryan stories in the future. Look, we could we can never have enough Jerry Ryan. And it did explain a lot why, you know, of Shaw's... Like, we went, okay, Shaw doesn't trust Seven because of the Borg thing, but now we find out a specific direct reason for it. And the great line of how she justified of when she explains to Shaw that she knew that LaForge was a changeling because mm. she didn't call her by Seven. And Shaw goes, oh, what's that all about? He goes, because that's a sign of respect. Yeah. And you just go, and that sinks into Shaw, and it's, yeah, it's a great... Great moment. Even without this amazing speech from Shaw, this would have been a great Shaw episode. Like the the chime, because he's in his quarters and Seven's knocking on the door. The chime, don't come. Chime, don't come. Chime, okay, come. Can I talk to you? Officially, no. Unofficially, no. You know, just... <laughs> It's a beautiful melding of the writing and the performance. It is obvious these two, like the writer and the performer, know each other so well. And their the work is incredible because of it. And it was a great setup of like, you find out more about Shaw. Yeah. And there's this great dramatic moment where Picard goes, I, there's nothing I can say. I just have to walk out. But then Picard goes, actually, there's information within that traumatic story that I can use. And so therefore they go back to Shaw and he's the only one that can. Yes. Oh, it serves a purpose. It serves a story it... purpose. Yep. And so he's the only one that could get down there and do the hot wiring. And a great, beautiful Star Trek ending where they are literally, it's always a darkest before the dawn. Oh. So they are literally at their lowest point. They they assemble to... around the conference room table. They work the problem. Riker isn't convinced, but then he is convinced. I did note a moment of, maybe I'm oversensitive to this stuff because this is my day job, this kind of thing, these workplace dynamics. But Crusher says, Deanna would say it's about trust. Let's come together and trust each other to do what we know we're good at. And 
Riker is unconvinced and turns away. Then Picard says effectively the exact same thing. And he turns around and goes, actually, now that you say it, Jean-Luc, I'm convinced. <laughs> like This sexism seems to have persisted into the 25th century is all I'm saying. Uh, yep. Um, it, it, it was a fun moment to see the three, like the three family members come up with the idea. So there was Jack, oh, yeah, it, Beverly and Picard going, oh, how about this? How about this? How about this? And they're just riffing off each other. And the three of them go, ah, there's a dynamic that I would like to see more of. Jack was a nice presence in this episode, but more and more. And, I, you know, the Red Vines tell us that there is a story here that centers around him. So we need to get to know him so we can mm. feel what will happen to that character. But every long unburdening of the soul that Picard and Jack have together make me regret the fact that we're not getting that more of that between Crusher and Picard. Yeah. They had the one scene in sickbay, and it's been very transactional since then. Yes, very much so. Well, Beverly was serving a purpose of figuring out what these pulses of energy mean and yeah. what this could. And so that was, they have a crucial role and that was wonderful to see how proactive they were. But that takes away from. I love how type. competent she is. I love ah. how she's making a difference in every episode. She's got stuff to do in every episode. They are serving her character well, but they aren't quite serving the Picard Crusher relationship as yeah. well as I might hope for. But I guess you can't have everything. We've only got an hour each week. Shutting we down... wasted so much in episode two. They wasted so much in episode two. Yes. Shutting down life support in order to eke the last little bit of power out of the ship to do that that wave surf. It was, I really nerded out on that. So often we see Starfleet ships like where main power is down and the lights on the set turn off, but all the computers keep working. All the air <laughs> keeps flowing. You can still make a cup of tea if you need to. I'm not really sure what power they've lost other than lights. But here there was a sense of, oh no, really, we're throwing it all into the last ditch attempt to save ourselves. They did everything but have people float off the ground because the gravity plating was switched off. <laughs> but it was nice to hear a very specific life support is turning off now alarm that it feels like one of those really low tech things that it's the last thing to fail on a ship, that alarm. Yeah. It's someone standing in the corner turning a crank on a box. That's what makes <laughs> that sound. So yeah, lovely to see the workings of a ship like that. Definitely. And then to have that everything built up. So they've finally got off. They need to open the two vents. The changeling comes in. Seven of nine needs to sort that out. Then they open the vents. So then the next thing they need to do is they need to ride with the wave as it goes along. Then at that point, Vatic shows up yeah. Then they had to find a way to solve it. And they've very quickly, I reckon Riker now has the Riker maneuver named <laughs> after him, the check an asteroid at him but didn't they throw something else early early in the season vatic threw the ship at the titan and so right. throwing the asteroid at vatic was giving as good as we got i was thinking that and they're going that maybe there could have been a reference to that going yeah see how you like it yeah exactly so like <laughs> yes yeah, she threw a ship at me i'll throw a rocket her yeah very petty Riker. <laughs> and then finally getting through and not only is it the beauty of oh my god we've survived but then look around and space look. Space babies. Space babies everywhere. And you just go, that's friggin' Star Trek. That's <laughs> Star Trek right there. Were it's they not... too cute for you? My partner was said, 
they didn't need to have eyes. They didn't need to have cute anime eyes. <laughs> I thought they were absolutely fine. And what yeah. all, how the depths of the episode went, I was totally mm. fine with just that beautiful sight. And just that's it had what to be beautiful with. enough to restore Riker's faith in the universe. Yeah. And just to remember, this is what Star Trek is. It's that positivity, the joy of in coming across new life and new civilizations as opposed to space battles or swearing. A, a real sense of end of chapter or end of story here at the end of episode four. What I'm expecting at this point is another series of four episodes that mm. are one story and then like a grand finale at the end of the season. And the sense of closing a book that we are going to open again in the next episode, but it is very much the end of something. There's a long series of scenes at the end here that are both resolving character issues and setting up mysteries for the next chapter. And Riker's call to Troy, oh. where he confesses why he left and and accepts responsibility for what's been going on in their relationship. This one worked for me. This was the best Riker speech we've had so far this season for me. And that was the fourth amazing speech, the second from Riker in a single episode that really hit home for me. And it's just, that's one of the few moments I actually liked about Picard season one. I loved Picard hanging out with Troy and Riker and hanging out with the daughter and Sure, the grief of the loss of their son was there, but it just, it felt right. And then it gets caught up in other ridiculous stuff in season one, but it felt right. I really hope um, we get to see Troy in the flesh. Like it's starting to feel like she's just going to be a voice on the phone this season. Oh, really? No, I'm there going, they've got to have at least a moment where everyone's together. Oh, I want more than a moment though. I want an, <laughs> I want a whole episode of them all together. Coming from my experience as a Doctor Who fan, the biggest event for us was, one of the biggest events for us was the 20th anniversary where they had the five Doctors. And the original actor who played the Doctor had been dead for a number of years. The fourth Doctor, Tom Baker, the most popular one, didn't want to come back because it was too soon after he had left. So we only technically had three Doctors and most of those Doctors were sent off to their own little adventure. And then in the final moments, they see each other again. They got so them I, to stand in one room for 10 minutes. For 10 minutes is all we could get. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping we have more than that. Yeah. But I am expecting that like end of Star Trek six where they're all together and oh, not even, not even Sulu was there. He's on the, on, on board Excelsior. I just wanted to say the culmination of the scenes of Picard's lunch being interrupted by eager cadets with Jack asking, did you ever find time for a family outside of Starfleet? I thought it was just, they went, a little too far making Jack wear a stalker hat in the bar in that scene. I think we we could tell that he was secretly following Picard around without giving him a creepy baseball hat. Yeah, and were baseball caps still around there? <laughs> Did you wear them indoors? Is what I wanted oh, to know. Oh, look, and when you when you're in a when you're I in a bar, said, young man, I have never needed a family outside of Starfleet. I would have said, young man, take off your hat. We're indoors. <laughs> They're in a pub, all right. You can wear a hat. It wasn't like a high class. Yeah, they're using the same pub. But they're going, that fish and chips is cold. That, like yeah. the amount of time he goes, I'm going to have my dinner. I've got another question. I'm going to have my dinner. And they go, seriously, that's the point where you turn and go, I'm eating and just everyone leave. Or you just pick up the fish and go, oh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. 
Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's why I'll never make it as a Starfleet captain or admiral. It is fun to think of the timeline of that bar that Picard went back in time in season two and found that Guinan had been on Earth running a bar at 10 Forward Avenue. Then he came back into his present and went, I wonder if that bar is still there 400 years later. And (laughs) sure enough, it is. So he starts having lunch there and the cadets get word that every Tuesday at lunchtime, Old man Picard can be ambushed for stories, and uh, <laughs> apparently Picard doesn't mind because he keeps going. <laughs> yeah, go, oh, again? Oh. <laughs> oh, well. I think, and maybe it's just the same haddock every week. They just bring it out going, <laughs> we'll just put this out in front of you. And That's he goes, right. oh, I have, go, this hasn't been touched for months, okay? <laughs> it's been sprayed in some sort of thing to keep it all together yeah, so it yeah. doesn't. And then he goes, he loves the bar so much that when he goes off on a mission, he recreates it on the holodeck at his lowest point. Um, Hand waving justification. We've yeah. got, we've, he really got likes that bar. I don't know about you. There is no place in the world that I like as much as Picard likes that 10 forward bar. Exactly. But there's also a case of he's never in the history, and I'm not as au fait with Next Gen as you are, obviously, but when has he ever been in a bar? No. Nah. When has he ever gone to, oh, you know what I need? I need a you know, well, early Well, young 25th. Picard was a bar surfer for sure. Ah, uh, of yeah. course, of course. That's where so he So he's scam. recapturing his youth. Sure. Yeah, let's go that. Yeah, that's a nice wave of the hand explanation. <laughs> but they did give the impression with the look that he, that Picard figured out that mm. was Jack. Yeah. In it, was that just me? It occurred yeah. to him. Yeah. I don't think we can quite believe it, so they didn't explicitly say it, but they gave us enough of a hint that we can, like our heart can believe it, even if our brain can't. Very true. So (laughs) our hearts were full from that episode. No win scenario was definitely a win-win situation for at least Kevin and I. And Mm. overall, the feedback online from the fans has been quite positive, apart with the odd niggle here about the swear word or... The swear word, Rob... Let's get to it. We've been tiptoeing around it for so long and you lay it out bare bones. Let's discuss swearing in Star Trek. Yes. I feel like we should give an opening statement each of just what is our personal irrational um, reaction or rational reaction, if you feel it is, to swearing in Star Trek. Just what is your personal preference and why? What do you attribute it to? Then I've done a bit of research on the history of swears in Star Trek, so we'll go through it and maybe discuss some of those instances to see if they evolve our thinking. First and foremost, I can't believe I've, I've found myself in a position where I'm of the traditional view of it's created, it's been created this world where mm. swearing has not been involved. So much so in my, the big first movie I saw, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, that swearing is an antique. Yes. They don't know how to do it. They and so do, they barely recognize what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And there's big discussions of it and it's hilarious and brilliant and wonderful. They go, all the colorful metaphors. <laughs> oh, you mean the profanity? Oh, you can find it in all the great works of Jacqueline Suzanne. Oh, <laughs> The giants. Great. Kirk says, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear Swear every other other word. And that how bad they are at it. That's what I love about it. That's it. It is a lost art. Yes. Double dumbass on you. The hell they did. Yes. They are not the hell your whales. That's right. Spock, I think you should cut down on this. Some of that is, okay, Spock is not human. 
He grew up on Vulcan. You could understand that maybe it is a human cultural artifact that Spock doesn't recognize. But And Kirk Even is Kirk. proud of how much he knows about swearing, but he's terrible at he's it, terrible too. He's terrible at it. He's terrible. And it's great because you have it with 80s contemporaries. So you yeah. have Jillian. And Jillian, she says, son of a bitch. She slaps the guy when yeah, they yeah. take George and Gracie and calls him a son of a bitch. That's right. And you go, so for me, I'm going, that makes sense. That's... The, of that time and they these characters are so bad at it i was one of those people when as soon as we get to picard and the abril up against picard is just dropping bombs all the time and mm. i'm there going this doesn't feel right at all mm. and i think i figured out what it is because i was okay with the f-bomb dropped by picard because he's he's not in uniform he's out of uniform he's yeah. in this relaxed setting they're just hanging out and chatting and yeah. swearing could be a thing in a casual sense. I didn't like it when they're swearing in uniform. Yeah. And they go, I don't know what it is because they're going. One of the yeah. most senior members of Starfleet in her own office says the sheer fucking hubris. It felt like Starfleet was broken to me. And yeah. may maybe that was what we were supposed to feel, but. Ugh. And that seems a little bit, yeah, of the showrunners going, yeah, yeah, that's it. It Starfleet's broken. Can't but you that see? Is, just, yeah. yeah. So somewhere between the 23rd and 24th centuries, we get that swearing came back into fashion and was rediscovered somehow. Yeah. I miss that days of Star Trek four where they have evolved so much. They don't need money. There's no poverty, no disease and no swearing. Yeah. And so I, that's I okay. like that that's where your head is at because me too. Every time it happens, my mind immediately goes to Star Trek four and goes, yeah. no, it has been historically established. Exactly. It's canon. This is something that has fallen away from our culture, our knowledge. It's not about, it's not about morals or humanity being better than that. It is the history of the world. And just like changing any other rule or breaking any other rule in Star Trek makes the world feel less real, this makes the world feel less real to me. It's it, something that people have been saying about the latest Scream movie that has come out, Scream 6, mm. which is Scream from a couple of years ago, which is Scream 5 and Scream 6 is like they're trying to create this new reboot of it. And some of the legacy characters have come back. Some of them haven't, but they've created this new generation. And what a lot of people are saying is going, when Scream was originally created by Wes Craven, he was excited. He had experimented with this type of meta reference to horror and slasher films with Freddy's New Nightmare, which is a great experiment. It's not a very good film, but there's some incredible stuff in it where the actress who played Nancy in the original is haunted by Freddy Krueger. So she plays herself in this altered reality where she is haunted by the ghost of the character from the movie she was in. Very meta. He refined that and created Scream, which is a celebration, not only of the slasher genre, but horror genre and all those references really elevate it. And he was excited by it. Whereas now people look at it and they're using all those elements that made Scream good, but there's no, they're doing it not because they love the franchise. They're doing it just to get a paycheck. Right. It's, it's cynical or it's, it's a little, uh, it seems a little bit cynical. Surface to go, level. Yeah. Surface level going, this is what, oh, okay. So the Scream movies are about twist, plot twists, big reveals and 
gimmicky in joke stuff about horror genre. Yeah. And th they've just kept that. Whereas when Craven did it, he added all those elements, but he loved the genre. He knew so much about it. That's what I get with this modern version of Star Trek is that it's basic stuff. If you knew Star Trek, you know, Star Trek four that's there and you can use that. They've created an entire world where, you know, swearing from the Elizabethan era is not the same as swearing as it is now. Yeah. Um, Although the F word is surprisingly persistent in English culture. You can't beat the classics, Kevin. <laughs> like when they made Deadwood, a lot of, they said they had to make the artistic choice of going, we could use all the type of swear words back. People would in. laugh because it doesn't. People would laugh. Yeah. So they said, let's put in all those swear words that people know now yeah. to have that impact. And so that's what I get from now. They go, it's, they can do it a hand wave gesture reference back to it. Go, maybe swearing has come back, but no, it's been proven. In Star Trek, it is canon. You're just doing it to be cynical and you yeah. just want to go, let's be, let's do something radical with Star Trek. Let's add in swearing. And so of course it loses all legs because of going, we've established that it's died out mm. because just like poverty, just like disease, just racism. What, what of yeah. those other things are no longer true in the Star Trek universe if the, if the absence of swearing has been tossed aside? Yeah, as well, like a lot of people are angry about Okay, swearing is back. And also someone with a severe mental condition cannot be treated in a future utopia where they've, where they've established that in Star Trek, all those type of things can be healed, can be sorted out. And that's a utopian vision. I mean, Rob, Crusher got pregnant, uh, had an unplanned pregnancy. I don't buy that in the 24th <laughs> century either. One last night of passion, but God, <laughs> he doesn't miss, he engages. Beyond the historical fact of swearing in Star Trek, and that is, for me, my only rational objection to it. And it's a strong one, but I feel like creatively the ship has sailed and I almost need to get on board with it because there are more examples for swearing than against swearing at this point. But the other way it affects me is a, it's something that's relatively personal to me. And therefore, I don't think it's, it's at all important or anything that the creatives behind the show should be thinking of. But as someone who grew up with Star Trek, as for me, it was the primary pop cultural influence on my personality. Star mm -hmm. Trek was my show from, from the age where I was old enough to watch the original series in reruns right up to today. It is the show that I have always watched as soon as I could get my hands on it. And when you engage with a piece of art that closely, it colors you in return. Yeah. I am known by people who know me well as someone who rarely swears. <laughs> and to the point when I do swear, people are shocked by it. In the same I, way that people are shocked when Star Trek swears. I have known you on and off for years, and I didn't even know that you knew what a swear word was. So. <laughs> and uh, it's only relatively recently that I think I realized I, I should be attributing that to Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Star Trek showed me people that I look up to and showed me that they don't swear. In fact, they live in a culture where that has been left behind. And... As a young, impressionable youth, I took that on as part of my definition of what it is to be a good person. To the point where today, when people swear, I like I have a irrational, like I'm somewhat triggered by it. 
I don't yeah. judge them for it. I try not to respond or react to it unduly, but it is something that Star Trek has left me with. And to now have Star Trek triggering me, if you will, I use the largest of scare quotes around that word in this they case. They are very big, listeners. <laughs> they are very big. But for Star Trek now to be the thing that is shocking me with swearing, rather than, th than the thing that created that aspect of my personality, it is a thing to, to reckon with. Uh, Look, for me, I also see it as very lazy and clumsy writing and going for a cheap reference because there are multiple examples within the sci-fi realm where you've got around that by creating, especially a lot of television stuff, by not being able to use swearing, so they create their own. So Star Wars doesn't have any swearing at all, and it would completely take you out, but they have created their own swear words. The biggest one is poodoo, which is their yeah. version of what that, you know, of crap, of poo, of yeah. shit. Red Dwarf, one of the greatest sci-fi comedy shows of all time, they create their own swear words where they have, you know, smeg. Yeah. Smeg substitute everything else. They dropped in asshole every once in a while or stuff like that. But Battlestar Galactica did it. Frack. Yeah. yeah. Battlestar Galactica was the next one. They created their own swear words as well. It can be done. It is a precedent. It is, it is cheap. It is lazy. And mm. it, and yeah, you said, well, I've just got to get on board because everyone else is and going, we have justified it in my way of going, well, I kind of like Picard saying fuck when he's just casually having a drink with his son. But again, it's a case of, but it's not clever. Yeah. And it's no matter how time they try and justify it. I don't doubt that. Patrick Stewart was able to get somewhere in his performance with that mm. word that he wasn't able to get without it. I yeah. don't doubt that the take was stronger and that it made the moment, the scene work better, but at what cost? Yeah, it does take you out a little bit. And Patrick Stewart has been doing a lot better this season performance-wise than previous seasons. Mm. So that's a credit to the directors they've got, to the writing, to the environment that he feels safe within. So very briefly, I'll share with you my research here. So the first prominent example of swearing in Star Trek that I could find was in the original series, back when they were dealing with the censors of television in the 60s, City on the Edge of Forever, the episode in which they go through the Guardian of Forever back in time, Kirk falls in love with Edith Keeler, John Collins, she, come she on. must die in a traffic accident in order to put history back on track. They come back into the present and Kirk is broken up by the loss of his love. And he sits heavily in his captain's chair on the bridge and he says, let's get the hell out of here. And it is that word at that time was transgressive. Yep, yeah. yeah. And according to the some of the research that's been done, there's a great book called These Are the Voyagers that's on my bookshelf here that is deep history from the memos between Gene Roddenberry and the studio around that time. This was something that the studio said no. Roddenberry fought for it. He said it's an important moment to the story and there's no other way to achieve it. And ultimately the studio relented. So it was a fight to get that word on our screens back in the 60s. But it, an argument could be made 
many people argue that is the best episode of the original series. And yeah. I might argue that line is the best line in that episode. And I struggle to reconcile that with how Picard's F-bomb in this latest episode affected me because this is the equivalent at that time. At that time, yeah. Yeah. And but it works. He he gives that order in a way he never has given an order before and never will again. And so you buy that something irreversible and unprecedented has happened to this character in a single line. Definitely. But it's still it's still lazy? No, not at all. No. I don't see it as lazy. And I still like was a hell of a statement at that time. <laughs> Literally. Because <laughs> <laughs> And that's more to do with the conservative nature of American society, which is mm. still very much prominent now. And it's such a, it's not like he said, let's get the fuck out of here. That's right. Yeah. Or, yeah, let's get the shit out of here. Sure. Cause that's a phrase that people say. Kevin. Yeah. I well, know you don't know swearing that me, I swear all the time. <laughs> and how many times have I said, let's get the shit out of here. Yeah. Oh. I need to ask my parents, cause I wasn't alive in the sixties. I need to ask my parents was... Captain Kirk saying hell on the bridge of the Enterprise, is that equivalent to Picard saying fuck today? Like, yeah. is it, is it I don't as think it, bad? I don't think it is. Mm. I think it, it's very much that conservative American culture, you do not say that because that is our Lord and Savior mm. connection. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think it's, it, it was a, a shocking moment that had to be fought for, but people go, oh, as opposed to going, that's a swear word. That is it. Like hell is causes a lot of how palpitations within the conservative group, yeah. but it is not dropping the f bomb. McCoy gave us a lot of damn it, Jims in the movies. <laughs> I think we can move past that at that time. Um, if anyone was going to gonna swear, I'd yeah. accept Bone swearing. Sure. Yeah, and he does uh, say, "Are you out of your Falcon mind?" So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, we talked about Star Trek Four already. Moving into the next generation, Picard twice is established as swearing in French. He uses the word merde, in, uh, which is shit in, shit. in yep. French, twice, both in The Last Outpost, episode five of season one, and Elementary Dear Data, episode three of season two. It is notable to me that both of these are very early in the run. It almost looks to me, in hindsight, like they were flirting with this being a quirk of Picard, like every once in a while when things get really bad, he says meld. And the audience will go, oh, there's the old Picard catchphrase. <laughs> In both cases, it came off a little strange and it had fans asking why the Universal Translator didn't translate it. And it was just not worth the speed bump of the moment in my mind. And yeah. so I'm glad they dropped it. But it is there if you go looking for it. If you look for the shit, you'll find it. <laughs> and then fast forward to the next gen movies. We have Data freshly equipped with his emotion chip as the saucer section of the Enterprise's crash landing on Viridian 3. He goes, oh, shit. <laughs> That's right. It does. <laughs> and it has to be the dumbest moment in what is not the strongest film of the franchise that's the one where I'm like, no, too far. I oh, was, really? I'm, even I'm on laughing. day one watching it, I was like, nope, nope, don't like <laughs> it. It is, it is an attempt at comedy. We are supposed to laugh at that. It is meant to be funny. Data or Brent Spiner loves playing comedy when he can. But in a moment where the Enterprise is split in two and crash landing 
those of us who take Star Trek seriously, those of us who are affected by peril to our characters and the biggest character of all, the Enterprise, not in a mood to laugh in that moment. And that's the thing. That's more of a sign of they didn't get the humor balanced out in that particular film, especially because they work on the emotion ship in Data. Yeah. And all of it falls flat. Even remember the first time when they were showing a clip back in the day where they're going, Star Trek Generations comes out. This is the first time, blah, blah, blah. Here's a clip. And they showed the clip of him going, open sesame humor. Yeah. I love it, which yeah. I've quoted multiple times. And even then I was watching it going, oh. <laughs> Still better than swearing swearing on the bridge during a crash. Yeah, but that is, is leveled at, oh, that comedy isn't hitting properly. Oh, the saying, oh shit, makes me laugh now. Yeah. Yeah. And that would probably work better in the Orville as opposed to, yeah, or Galaxy Quest. But yeah, at this moment, it takes away from the tension. And then from there, we end up in Discovery where Tilly and Stamets drop some language at different times and the, the fans are somewhat outraged and the creators are like, ah, get over it. They're young and impressionable. People, people should be excited on Star Trek and they should let their feelings out in unpolished ways when they do. And like, I think that brings us back to what we've already covered is that those versions of it are especially historically out of place in a way that I would wish they, mm-hmm. I, I wish they would take more seriously and do as much damage to the moment as support it. Like the, if the argument is it makes the characters more believable... In return, it makes the world less believable. And on balance, I don't think it's worth it. Look, and there's a lot of issues within, like I have my own issues with Discovery anyway, but just how they have tried so much to overhaul it for the sake of overhauling. Yeah. And they go to hell with the consequences timeline-wise or anything like that. We'll sort that out with a wave of our hand later on. We want to have all this modern stuff in for the sake of it Mm. as opposed to just letting it occur naturally and doing it it's clever it's far cleverer to do it within the confines of the genre you have as opposed to go dragging it out of what makes the show what it is it's just yeah anyone can just throw in swear words or stuff like that give us a performance that feels like a swear word without using it that's clever Yes. William Shatner said Khan, and I know he Heck was saying, yeah. yeah, he was saying every other swear word imaginable, <laughs> and Khan isn't even a swear word. Uh, so I swear I felt that DeForest Kelly dropped many swear words in his entire performance, but he never did. No. Because, yeah, it's the intention he put behind it. It seems like we're on the same page, Rob. I think we should wrap this one up and see if we can find something to disagree about next week. (laughs) Yeah, great episode, brilliant direction, wonderful writing. Take swearing out of Star Trek, find a cleverer way, make up your own swear word. We've got Frack, we've got Smeg, Mm. we've got Poodoo. What can you come up with? Bring Double Dumbass on you back. (laughs) I would love that. (laughs) 